0: Hello and welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast joining us this week is Bruce Shulman, the harmsworth professor of American history at Oxford University as well as the William Huntington professor of history at Boston University professor Shulman's paper is drawn from his current book project a monumental volume of the Oxford history of the United States covering the period 1896 to 1929 entitled from the smoke-filled room to the singing teapot women voters and the transformation of American politics 1924 to 1928 the paper is considered Concerned with the transition from partisan politics to the mass-mediated, interest-based politics of the 20th century. Given Professor Shulman's current workload, we're very grateful that he could spare some time to talk with us. Eric Wyckoff Rogers, a PhD candidate at Cambridge, joins as co-host for this week. Eric's work tackles the fraught politics of sexual manipulation in the military, commercial advertising in the 1910s and 20s, and the way that they set the stage for the gender and sex relations of the 20th century. Having just submitted their dissertation, we want to take a moment to wish Eric good luck for their ensuring viva and extend thanks for taking time out of their preparation for this conversation. Thanks for tuning in, and I'm your host, Hugh Wood. So, hello. Um, Welcome back to the Cambridge American History Seminar podcast. We are joined by Bruce Shulman um, and Eric Wyckoff-Rogers. And Bruce is here to discuss um, his paper, From the Smoke-Filled Room to the Singing Teapot, Women Voters and the Transformation of American Politics, 1924 to 1928. So, just want to start off by saying... uh, Thanks for joining us, Bruce, it's very good of you. Um, So for the benefit of those who've not read the paper, um, what's going on? When and where are we in the world? Um, What kind of arguments are we making? And how does this uh, particular paper fit into the wider work that you're doing at the moment?
1: So first and foremost, thanks to Eric and Hugh for inviting me and having the chance to talk about this paper. Where we are are in the 1920s. And indeed, one of the things I try to do in this paper is to take the 1920s seriously as a historical moment and avoid the kind of teleologies that are normally associated with most histories of the United States in the 1920s. I mean, even though we have many cultural associations with the so-called Roaring Twenties, historians, by and large, have kind of used the 1920s either as an add-on to the preceding period, what they have mainly called the progressive era, to ask did so-called progressive reform continue, persist, or did it fade away in that period? Or more recent, that was a subject that occupied historians of the early 20th century for a couple of generations. More recently, though, they have kind of more tacked it on to the 1930s asking if you could see the beginnings, the roots, the sources of the New Deal order, the set of political and social arrangements that begin to take shape in the 1930s, if we can kind of see their origin points back in the 1920s. So one of the things I want to do here is to take the 1920s and some of the carnivalesque aspects of politics and public life in the 1920s seriously for their own sake, so that's where we are. And I wanna remind listeners of perhaps the obvious, which is that this is also the period immediately after women's suffrage became national. So suffrage had been won by women over the course of several decades on a state-by-state basis, but finally with the ratification of the 19th Amendment women's suffrage was throughout the United States. So that kind of sets the scene. And then really, the origins of this paper, there's both a kind of big, broad answer and a small, particular discovery that led to this paper. So the big, broad problem is that, to me, one of the central questions of modern US political history is how do we get from the era of party politics, the party games of the late 19th century, when party organizations dominated just about every aspect of political life, and in fact, many aspects of social and cultural life for men, I should stress, not for women really, but for men? Um, how do we get from, you know, in, in that era, in that party era, Party organizations, local machines, were the main way that politicians both communicated with and mobilized groups of ordinary voters. How do we get from the era of party politics to the perhaps more familiar model of mass mediated interest group politics that has taken shape by the middle of the 20th century? in which the governors and the governed are communicating mainly through the mass media, party allegiances are not as strong, party organizations no longer structure every aspect of political life. They're still there, they don't die completely. And we now have a variety of different kinds of interest groups, business groups, labor groups, consumer groups, women's groups, civil rights groups, religious groups, occupational groups, hobbyist groups that are kind of drawing different axes that are dividing the electorate, that are dividing the polity in different ways. So to me, this has been one of the most persistent, enduring questions in American political history, and yet, even though there are clearly many factors that contributed to this, there's never been a really good answer to it. And so that brings me to my little discovery that got me thinking in a new way about this problem, because I've been thinking about this problem for many times and looking at how mass immigration changed the dynamics, how the development of new media and new technologies changed the dynamics, um, you know many other, the rise of certain kinds of interests. but Nothing was really satisfactory. And then I was working in the archives in the papers of John W. Davis, who was the corporate lawyer who became the Democratic Party's nominee for president in 1924. Davis is probably best known for being the the lawyer for the defendants in the Brown versus Board of Education case in the 1950s. But in the 1920s, he was a West Virginia-born corporate lawyer Um, in that year when the Democratic Party kind of fell apart, um, he became the compromise candidate for president. And in the Davis papers, I found the guidebook that the newly formed women's division of the Democratic National Committee, so an organization the party had set up to mobilize women activists, but also to recruit women voters, they put out a handbook And the handbook was instructions to their women volunteers in the women's division of how to appeal to women's voters. And I was struck by something I found there. They said, don't try to make women voters Democrats. Women voters don't like parties. They're suspicious of partisan affiliation." You should tout what a great guy John W. Davis is. You should explain how corrupt the opposition is. You should do whatever you can to try to get them to vote for our ticket, but don't try to convert them to party membership because women are hostile to partisan appeals. And a kind of light bulb went off. It seemed, When you think about it, it seems obvious. Women, of course, had been not participated in party politics. They had been largely excluded from party politics. Some important exceptions in the 1910s as some Mm -hmm. newly enfranchised women do get involved in party politics. But instead, women had created this alternative political universe of interests, of groups, of uh, campaigns of education around issues, different kinds of mobilization, different kinds of tactics. They also had been consistently hostile to parties and partisanship, which they associated with corruption. And so this got me thinking, well, what did women's suffrage, how did women's suffrage contribute to this larger political shift? Because I hadn't seen anyone suggest that suffrage was a really important component there, and that led me to another oddity in the extant historical scholarship. There's tons and tons of work on the suffrage movement, relatively little on women's politics in the 1920s, and the conventional wisdom is that suffrage, if it wasn't an out-and-out failure, as some people said in the 1920s, it seems to have been a disappointment because women did not vote in a block in a certain way that obviously transformed politics. And beginning in the 1920s and running right through the current standard accounts, the consensus is that women's suffrage didn't much change the style or the content of American politics, that women pretty much voted like their husbands, sons, and fathers, And so at best, women's suffrage was a disappointment that it enlarged the electorate, but it didn't fundamentally transform the political order. Well, that turns out to be just plain wrong, I think. Uh, Work by sociologists, political scientists, and economists are showing that women's suffrage had a real impact on policy outcomes and then even on social trends like Child mortality rates, so that voting rights really matter for policy. But also, and what I explore in this paper is that it changed the conduct of electoral politics. That if you're going to vastly expand the electorate, not quite, but almost doubling it over the course of eight or 12 years and you're going to almost double the electorate by including people who are not loyal to the existing political parties or are in fact hostile to the very idea of party politics, well, that's going to transform the way even party politicians act, solicit votes, conceive of the electorate, and appeal to it. And that's what I explore in this paper. That's probably more long-winded than you want. No,
0: not at all. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, very full answer that you've given us. So, um, Eric, if you just want to jump in. Yeah.
2: Um, I think I might skip my next question and move um, to question number four. Mm-hmm. The question I have is, um, and you've given us a lot to work with already, um, while the piece is about the impact of women voters, uh, we don't really hear from many women in the story, and And that leads me to conclude that this is really a story about uh, the political operatives who are trying to mobilize and use women voters. Uh, So I guess the first question I have is, is that correct? Would you say that that's primarily the story you're telling? Um, And therefore, if it is, um, is the story that you're trying to tell a reflection of how women voters actually felt, or is it about how they were interpreted by political operatives?
1: Well, it's definitely a story of how women voters were conceived of by political operatives. But I do want to stress that women were an important component of that class of political operatives because beginning in nineteen sixteen when you know suffrage had already become a political reality in many states. When it was about to become a political reality in New York State, you know, then the largest state in the union, uh, both major political parties set up their first women's organization, the women's party organizations. They were made up entirely of women political operatives, and um, and they were given some very fancy titles i mean most most of the by the early 1920s the heads of the women's division in both parties were given a title of vice chairman of those parties now there were multiple vice chairman party vice chairmen and i think it's fair to say that even though the women's divisions operated more or less independently they were also under the control of the male operatives who ran those organizations the male operatives controlled the personnel who was going to be in those jobs um, but women activists play a um, a pretty significant role here and that's why I titled the paper from the smoke-filled room to the singing teapot the smoke-filled room was kind of the perhaps one of the most um, enduring metaphors for images of that party era in American politics. It comes from the probably legend, the apocryphal story, that Warren Harding got the Republican presidential nomination in 1920 because a bunch of party bosses, male party bosses, in a smoke-filled room chose him for the presidency. Um, From that, iconic moment, if you will, to the singing teapot. And the singing teapot of the title was an unusual campaign gimmick in the 1924 election when the women's division of the Democratic National Committee, led by a woman named Caroline O'Day, but also including one of Eleanor and Franklin Roosevelt's daughters, um, went on a tour of about 100 different northeastern cities and towns uh, with the singing teapot which was this large passenger vehicle with a giant paper mache teapot on top. The teapot meant to dramatize the Republican scandals, the teapot dome scandals. They would arrive in a town square and smoke would come out of the teapot which would then signal the appearance of one of these women speak as as speakers. So I think that you're absolutely right that the main characters in the story are mostly male political operatives who are trying to crack this nut, this problem of what do we do with women voters who either aren't voting, they are stay-at-home voters and we want to get them to the polls, or they are participating but they are hostile to the kinds of partisan appeals that we have made for the past generation or two, and so we need to think of different tools for that. So that is true, I think. That is largely what the story is, but they do include a sizable cadre of women political operatives uh, in this. And, um, And particularly in some parts of the country, women operatives play a larger role than in others.
0: Mm, And yeah, I do want to ask you about that. So when we say women, um, which women are you kind of talking about here? Um, Were political parties and operatives interested in mobilizing black, Latinx, immigrant Asian women voters or were they just interested in white middle class voters? Um, And you've just talked a little bit about regional differences there. Um, Are there ways, say, in New York, that it's different to San Francisco, is different to Philadelphia, um, that
1: has kind of turned up in the research that you've done? Uh, So that's a really good question. And I mean, I have to confess that this is really at an early stage, and so I don't have all the answers. Mm -hmm. So I only have a few kind of examples of regional differences. One is the American South and the Jim Crow South, and here I'm relying on very detailed research by another scholar um, who really looked at post-suffrage politics in the southern states. And there, I mean, we're talking entirely about white women and, for the most part, middle and upper class white women Uh, people who had been involved in suffrage. But even though that, that we're talking about a, you know, clearly limited segment of the female population of those places, one of the paradoxes of Jim Crow disfranchisement was that the electorate as a whole in those places was very small. You know, by some calculations, turnout was... 20% of of the adult population, total adult population of that state, which meant that the injection of even a small number of mostly educated middle class white women could alter the balance of power between factions within the Democratic Party in states that were truly one-party states, like the Deep South states of Mississippi, Louisiana, South Carolina, and so on. Or they could make Republican challenges a reality in some of the border states, like Tennessee, North Carolina, and Virginia. So that's one place where we can kind of see those regional differences. The other thing is that if we jump to the late 1920s. In 1928, Herbert Hoover was already gonna run a kind of almost an anti-party party campaign. That is, he was someone who was aware of and indeed was playing a role in pushing the kinds of shifts in political dynamics from party dominated to more interest group dominated. And also, here, he was somebody that had strong relationships with women's organizations going back to his work in the First World War and really thought that mobilizing previously non-participating women voters would be decisive in his campaign for the presidency in 1928. So he set up a huge women's activities division as part of his organization bureau So they set up what they called an organization bureau, which was a way to reach out to voters outside of the party machinery. So business and occupational groups uh, in various industries and trades, hobbyist groups like bicycle riders and so on, but also the largest part of it were women's activities. And this included, by the campaign's calculation, almost two million volunteers or members of these Hoover-Curtis women's clubs. It included the, what they called the Hoover Hostesses, which would invite groups of women over to listen to a, a Hoover campaign speech on the radio, and then socialize, and then part of that activity was for them to fill out pledge cards saying that they would promise to vote for Hoover in the election. And those pledge cards were then used in a get out the vote operation closer to election day. And there in the Hoover Library, in the records of the the women's activities division of this organization bureau, you can see that they are, the vast majority of these are in relatively small towns in the upper Midwest. And that seems to be a place where this kind of activity was very strong. And I think that largely, again, among white women, class status, kind of impossible to tell from the from the records we have.
2: Um, there's this idea uh, th- represented by Elizabeth Israel Perry's title that men are from the Gilded Age and women are from the progressive era which you uh, cite in the paper. Um, Of course this idea is based on the middle class sort of fantasy that uh, women are morally superior to men um, and that they could therefore be relied upon to clean up politics uh, essentially by applying the same influence that they supposedly applied to domestic life to public affairs. So this is the idea of so-called municipal housekeeping that the Women's Christian Temperance Union used um, to advocate for bringing women into the public sphere. And of course, this became, in many ways, the basis for you know, women appealing for getting the vote, that they, that they were going to play this sort of rectifying role um, in politics. And I suppose this maybe is part of what was disappointed, uh, as you, you described it earlier, and you describe in the paper that there's a lot of disappointment on the part of people who hoped that women would play this um, role and so forth. Um, so, I guess I have a sort of two part question. The first is how do domestic and maternal cultures and roles factor into the story here? Do they continue to factor in the story in some significant way? Um, and yeah, me, I'll turn it over to you there. I have a sort of part B um, as well. So,
1: I think you're exactly right that, you know, a lot of the disappointment was this idea that because of women's special role as the protectors of the family because that they were in some ways pure and more morally upright but that they would that their participation on a mass scale in politics through the suffrage would transform the conduct of politics in ways that were not the case after the achievement of the suffrage I think that that idea in this strange way has been sustained and magnified through time because the first wave of historians of suffrage were largely celebra- were largely celebratory but the first critical scholarship on suffrage really emerged in the among the radical historians of the 1960s and 1970s and for them they saw I mean, they largely saw suffrage as a kind of less important liberal, milk toasty kind of kind of a achievement. They were interested in more radical traditions in the American past and in the past of American women in particular. So they I think tended to kind of, you know reinforce that disappointment. Or it wasn't that they were disappointment. It was that they were saying, of course, suffrage wasn't going to change anything because suffrage wasn't all that important. Uh, I think that that would change later. And people would suggest that suffrage itself was a radical movement and that suffrage itself was in many ways a radical act and that it led to various other kinds of radical acts. So I mean, I think you're entirely right about that that disappointment angle. Um, If you look at the, what the party political operatives, male and female, are saying about women voters, I mean, they, they constantly echo this idea that women enter the public sphere primarily as wives and mothers and that it's these maternal instincts and interests that kind of explain their policy preferences certainly that played a large role in the politics surrounding the adoption of the shepherd-towner law that provided you know uh, federal funds for child and infant maternal care uh, in which largely male members of congress felt that they you know that they had to do that to satisfy the desires they had to they had to vote for this law to satisfy the desires of these newly enfranchised women who cared in particular about these things i think it might turn out to be more important that women were hostile to party politics and had devised means of political organization and mobilization outside of party politics. And there we get to kind of the second theme of this paper, because if political historians have, in my opinion, not given enough weight to women's suffrage in explaining the political transformations of the first half of the 20th century, I think they've also underplayed or perhaps misinterpreted the meaning of corruption or scandal in American politics and I think there's an important thread throughout the 20th century in which the politics of scandal or corruption when political actors make charges of corruption we all can think of examples when members of one party try to use that for partisan advantage against others, but there's a long tradition that stretches at least as far back as the Pinchot Ballinger scandal of the 1910s, stretches right into Watergate in the 1970s, I would say into the first Trump impeachment uh, scandal in the, in, the, in the last few years in which really what charges of scandal or corruption are about are civil servants or advocates of nonpartisan professional government resisting what they see as unseemly partisan political intrusion into the conduct of the people's business that there is a powerful anti-partisan element to it, that the battle between party politicians and what Donald Trump called the deep state, that this actually has a long history in the 20th century, and that when you hear people making charges of corruption, often that is a proxy for anti-partisanship. And this was certainly the case in the 1920s, at a time when women are entering the electorate in large numbers. And I think there's actually a large overlap between these two trends or these two traditions of women's alternative to partisan politics and of this broader, largely middle-class, um, anti, anti-partisanship. Yeah, um, thank you. I, I do wanna probably a bit
0: more about um... Anne Douglas has written about the feminization of culture in the late 19th century. And my own understanding of democracy in the 19th century in in America was it was boisterous, large rallies, men drinking in saloons. You say yourself, you know, it's in saloons, in the streets, places where politics happens and there's violence on election days and so on and so forth so did female suffrage bring about like a feminization of the political scene um by backing up their demands with political power of the vote or was that kind of style of politics dying away anyway and was accelerated by the advent of women onto the uh,
1: political scene that's a great question I mean, the answer to your question as you frame it is both. What we're really trying to do is kind of weigh the balance of the various factors that led to this kind of change in the style of politics. And the historian Michael McGurr wrote about 20 or 25 years ago this really, I think, provocative essay about what he calls political style, which is, kind of what you're getting at here that is, you know, what does political life look like, you know, on the ground? How do people conduct themselves? What do they do when they are participating in politics? Are they gathering and having torch-lit parades and drinking a lot of whiskey? Are they gathering in clubs and playing cards and drinking and talking? Are, are they picketing, demonstrating, are they printing broadsides, all these kinds of things. So that there was this shift in political style and that I think in many ways it, it meets Anne Douglas's model of feminization. Women's suffrage is not the only, maybe not the majority, you know, in terms of the engine of these changes. These changes were certainly already underway in the, in the couple of decades before women's suffrage became national with the ratification of the 19th Amendment. But I think it's really important. And if you think of suffrage not as an event that took place in 1920, but as a process that began in the 1880s, then you know it maps right on to this process of feminization that you're talking about, and you know is is suffrage a cause or an effect? Um, I think you can make a case that it's a little bit of both.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. yeah, and perhaps also um, part of this sort of search for order, right? Um, not just on the national scale, but on the sort of urban scale as well. Um, so you've been talking a lot about how women voters um, and the story that you're telling about them has um, is sort of challenging um, existing narratives about partisan politics and um, I guess I might just ask sort of straightforwardly what does introducing women as political agents who are against corrupt and myopic partisan politics change about those stories and is it is it maybe telling us or giving us another layer of understanding of the formation of the, the sort of administrative state, which is this form of the state, which is supposed to be according to uh, Woodrow Wilson, who I think maybe was one of the more prominent people to sort of theorize the administrative state as being distinct from the legislative state, sort of above politics or out of touch um, from everyday political um, partisanship?
1: It's a great question. and. The only question you're gonna get a short answer from me, the short answer is yes. I think you got it exactly right. I mean, if I can enlarge on that, I mean, I think you're right. I think that the entry of women into politics or into the electorate in large numbers is an important engine for the development of the administrative state, but also for the peculiar structure of the administrative state in the United States, which has been a feature of governance in the United States way back into the early 19th century. But I think Herbert Hoover is not only the embodiment of this original outreach to and mobilization of women voters, but is one of the key figures in the rise of what some historians have called the associative state. That is the understanding that the administrative state in the United States tends to work indirectly through um, mobilizing different social and political and economic actors within the polity regulating them rather than acting always directly. So, and I think that yes, that women's suffrage is an important ingredient in in some of the peculiar development of the American state in the period since nineteen
0: twenty. Yeah, um, let's see. Great answer. So what I'm going to do is kind of change tack slightly and ask you about the KKK who make an appearance in this. Um, And you seem to suggest they're another kind of anti-partisan organization that challenges um, traditional party affiliations.
1: They're they're funny in that way because they're kind of an anti-party party. Now that I'm sure seems to make no sense. So let me try to explain it. That is in the way they act they kind of function very much like local party organizations had in their social and cultural role in local communities in the way they mobilize men for political action and of course sometimes for political violence Um, and yet they are outside of and hostile to the, the main Political parties. So, in some ways, you can you might see them as a kind of transition from, uh, you know, from from one style of politics to another. But yours is a really important question, and I it's something that I'm I'm actually actively trying to learn more about because I remember when I read. The autobiography of the editor and kind of Republican Party kingpin William Allen White, uh, who's from Kansas, who was the editor of a local Kansas newspaper, the the Emporia Gazette, but was really kind of America's small town editor, uh, and was kind of a important player in Republican politics for thirty or forty years, man. Um, you know, the Klan takes over the Republican Party in Kansas, and he runs an independent campaign for governor to try to defeat the Klan candidate and loses. And Klan faction candidates win statewide office in Oregon and Colorado. They, they contend for a statewide office in many other states across the West where they're essentially functioning as a, almost a political party or a non-party party or an anti-party party. And so that's something that I'm trying to actively look into now. Brilliant. Um, yeah, thank you very much for that answer. So, If I can add maybe one thing yeah, to no, that, please, I, please. is that I think that there's also a strange connection between the Klan as you know, one of the dynamic forces weakening traditional partisan attachments by creating this alternate set of attachments and the anti corruption politics because in nineteen twenty five the key clan leader DC Stevenson gets involved in a corruption scandal of his own and you know this is one of the factors that leads the Klan that revived clan sometimes called the second clan that had been mounting in membership and influence not just and in fact not even primarily in the american south but across the country then it kind of peaks a- a- after that so
0: yeah no thank you so i think we're coming towards the end but eric if there's one final thing you want to say or another question that you've got then uh, we can kind of finish there to give you the uh
2: I do have a question on this rise of the associative state and Hoover's role in it. And I think this ties back in the domestic politics piece, which is that um, as Secretary of Commerce, uh, Hoover was a key backer of this organization called the Better Homes in America campaign, uh, which promoted home ownership and home economics. put home economics courses in schools. They they had these sort of show homes, which sort of modeled suburban domestic life for people in various communities. So you could go and tour like a model home and basically develop aspirations to live that way, to have a modern kitchen and a detached single family existence. And in a lot of ways, this prefigures the Federal Housing Administration. But they're also drawing on this sort of local sort of chapter based um organization model where it was a national organization but they they formed into local chapters which would organize on their sort of municipals respective municipal scenes and it seems like uh and, and again hoover hoover is a major sort of backer and endorser of this um and i guess um I'm just wondering if there's also some sort of subtext here, which connects these um, these sort of two major threads in in the piece of the sort of rise of the associative state and um, sort of the domesticity of women who are seen and modeled as kind of like local, uh, always local and always in a specific context, and therefore maybe like grassroots, like inherently, or maybe this is the way that uh, political operatives are seeing them.
1: Um, What a great question. Yeah, I, I think that's really suggestive. I think that what's interesting about Hoover in 1928 is that he takes a set of ideas and practices that he has been applying or trying to apply to governance in his role of Secretary of Commerce and, of course, you know, people would joke in the 1920s that Hoover was Secretary of Commerce and Secretary of everything else because he had he used that position to kind of put his fingers in all kinds of pies, the origins of radio regulation um, which really kind of set, sets up the foundation for regulation of the communications industry to this day um, so so many other things um, uh, The so the 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 kind of associative state piece this idea of collaborating with different organizations and also the structure of organizations that have local chapters under a national umbrella as a means to really mobilize grassroots and that of course is you know something that was a common feature of American organizational life outside of the formal state structure, but often allied with it because many of those organizations formed in order to get certain kind of state action or as the result of certain kinds of state action. So Hoover in the examples you cite and many others are working with those kinds of groups, he sees Cooperation between government and those groups as the mechanism of governance. And then when he kind of trains his lenses on running for the presidency in 1928, he and it's the same people, the person who heads the, the Hoover-Curtis Organization Bureau had been one of his... Commerce Department liaisons to these groups in the mid-1920s, he now kind of turns these same kinds of techniques to politics. And what does he do? There's a national organization, the Hoover-Curtis Presidential Campaign, but it sets up all these local clubs. And that's the way they try to mobilize support for Hoover, and in particular, women voters. Brilliant. Yeah, that is, unfortunately, all we've got time for.
0: Um, So I just want to say thank you very much, Eric, for coming in, for helping me out with the questions. And obviously, thank you very much, Bruce, for taking the time out of your day to sit with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank Thank you. Thank you. And that was Professor Bruce Shulman discussing his current project with Eric Wyckoff-Rogers. We hope you enjoyed it and are looking forward to the publication of Bruce's new volume of the Oxford History of the United States, which will be published soon. Thanks for tuning in and be on the lookout for a new podcast in the near future. I hope you stay well. Goodbye.